Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, in his 1798 essay on population, wrote, I think I can fairly make two postulates. First, that food is necessary to the existence of man. Secondly, that the passion between the sexes is necessary and will remain nearly in its present state. Now, these don't seem like the boldest predictions, but they point to what Malthus saw as a coming conundrum for mankind, how to keep the balance between an ever-growing population and that commensurate need for more and more food. As the global population continues to explode and our ability to grow food reaches what many see as a natural plateau, Malthus's words ring loudly, especially in a book called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. The author is Joel Bourne. He joins us in the program today. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joel Bourne joins us today from WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina. He is the author of The End of Plenty, and he's a regular contributor to National Geographic. Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. First of all, talk about the role agriculture has played in your life. It's one of the main reasons why you've written so substantially on this subject. To tell us about growing up near and on farms and why you wanted to be a farmer for some time. Oh, sure. Well, I grew up in a rural town in eastern North Carolina, and my grandfather had a farm in the county. Um, and so it was a beautiful, you know, very diverse farm, tobacco, peanuts, cotton, soybeans, uh, very typical to what was uh, what we grow in eastern North Carolina still today. Uh, so most of my childhood was spent just working and playing on that farm, uh, which I loved. And I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. So uh, when I uh, it came, come, came time to uh, apply to colleges, I just applied to one, NC State, and their uh, agronomy uh, department. And uh, was committed to being a uh, a farmer, a production agricultural farmer. So, uh, yeah. And while I was there, of course, I had had a bit of a change of heart and and took quite a left turn. The, and t- tell us a bit about that left turn, because I think one of the things you learned is that the farming that you grew up with is is a little bit different from agronomy or the the commercial agriculture that was being taught in schools. Sure. Well, like I said, in, when I was a kid, our farm was very diverse. But by the time my grandfather had passed away in 1972 and my father took over the management of the farm, uh, the Green Revolution was in full sway. And this was when Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts was uh, encouraging every farmer in America to plant fence row to fence row. Uh, America was going to feed the world. We just made this huge grain sale to Russia in that time and grain prices were high. Um, so it just, you know, the, the goal was to flex our agricultural mu- muscle. But what I noticed on my farm was that this, this intense focus on production agriculture really uh, drained the soils of their nutrients. Uh, we were left, uh, a lot of the wildlife on the farm, the quail that I used to love to hunt, just disappeared because of all the insecticides we were using. Uh, the chemical uh, form of agriculture just did not sit well with me. And when I asked uh, one of my agronomy professors, you know, what about this organic agriculture? Why can't we do that? And he would always respond, well, it's great for your garden, but it'll never feed the world. Just very dismissive of it. And so by the time I was at uh, sort of my junior year, I was in a weed science class. 
And one of my professors there was um, one of the senior faculty started talking about Silent Spring and DDT and how it was the greatest chemical ever invented and how Rachel Carson was just a kook. Uh, and I raised my hand in the back and I said, well, what about all these eagles and ospreys and, uh, you know, this wildlife that's coming back 10 years after we've banned it? And he just looked at me and he said, wildlife, it's all cyclical. And at that point I thought, wow, you know, this guy's wearing chemical blinders. There's, uh, I'm in the wrong spot. I've got to do something else. And so I'd always uh, been good at writing and English and uh, taking a few journalism classes and I thought it was a lot of fun. So I decided to, to go in that direction and I've been there ever since. The, the notion that thousands of years w- worth of growing things, uh, mostly organically, would be abandoned so quickly, it seems like a, a very human thing in some ways, Joel. But m- maybe you can just talk about that, that revelation in that period that we had that we call the Green Revolution in the middle part of the 20th century, because it seems as though that that's what you chronicle here, that that we turn away from something that farmers have known for quite some time, uh, making sure that the soils are nutrient-rich and that you rotate crops and that you have a diversity of crops on your land and use animals and plants together. It, it seems as though we quickly turned away from that and put on these chemical blinders, and it happened very quickly, didn't it? It, it did, but we also have to remember that farmers have been um, very interested in things that increase their production for a long time. Uh, before we had the Green Revolution, we had the British Agricultural Revolution that brought in things like marl, you know, which is the precursor to agricultural lime, and turnips, you know, which brought in uh, was sort of the legume element that helped uh, crops fix nitrogen. There was a huge um, industry importing guano, you know, from from South America that uh, farmers in the Civil War and afterwards used because they were so good at providing nitrogen to crops. But only after the big chemical revolution, sort you know, it sort of started in in the in the nineteen around nineteen sixteen when two German chemists figured out how to get nitrogen from the atmosphere in this Haber-Bosch process using natural gas. And then it continued on with, really, uh, chemical warfare that uh, the agents you know, were also used as insecticides. So uh, when those became widespread, then you know, these were new tools in farmers' arsenals. And so by the end of World War II, there was a huge problem around the world. You know, half the world was hungry. You know, we were, uh, people in Europe were starving. You know, it was just, the, the world seemed like it was in crisis. And so uh, many uh, groups, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, primarily, uh, along with the USDA and, and help from American government, uh, decided we need to create this sort of push to help improve crop yields around the world. It, the original focus was in Mexico, where Norman Borlaug, the Nobel laureate, uh, did his, um, his, his incredible work down there with plant breeding and wheat. Uh, but it, it eventually extended to rice and, and uh, all the other crops, maize. You know, this idea that we could congen- genetically improve uh, our seeds, use these nutrients, these fertilizers, and these chemicals to protect them, and also copious amounts of irrigation water, which was a part of the Green Revolution people don't think too much about. Um, which can increase yields two to three times. So we, they thought, wow, this is a panacea. This is scientific agriculture. Let's do this. And it, of course, uh, spread worldwide and produced an enormous amount of food. So even though the world's population tripled since 1960, the world's farmers produced enough food to keep up, largely enough, uh, until around the turn of the century. 
And that's a, a very important part of the story that you tell in your book, The End of Plenty. Uh, a lot of people who we've had on our program who talk about organic farming in a way that we need to get back to the land and away from uh, mass farming on enormous farms where we just have one crop growing. They blame big agribusiness and they say the greedy companies are decimating the land. But but you tell the story about feeding a very hungry world, a world that was going to go hungry if the scientific revolution was was not taking place in the middle part of the 20th century. Well, that's that's very true. And again, every there, you know, we found that the Green Revolution was a double-edged sword. It produced an enormous amount of food and ena- enabled us to keep people reasonably fed, but it also had enormous environmental impacts. Uh, whether it's fertilizer uh, pollution in our waterways and coastal estuaries, uh, pesticide contamination uh, in our groundwater, uh, you know, all these things in the in the complete uh, you know, draining of these incredibly important aquifers that we've had for for centuries, uh, just through this modern type of agriculture. But uh, so it's had this downside, but we all, we tend to forget that uh, it has enabled people to um, uh, buy food more cheaply, which is, you know, actually reduced poverty in many parts of the world, particularly uh, parts of Asia. So it has had this, this, uh, a tremendous benefit as well. Um, but it did not come without a pretty steep cost. We're talking uh, with Joel Bourne, who's the author of The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. If you want to join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You say that the the world population, of course, tripled since 1960, and because of these revolutions in agriculture, we were able to to keep up. Have we kept up at the same pace? Have we been able to uh, continue the type of crop yields that we saw in the early days of the Green Revolution to keep up with the increasingly exploding population? Well, that's that's where we find ourselves now. We're sort of in the crux of the issue. Now, Norman Borlaug, with his dwarf uh, wheats, and uh, which uh, eventually led to these dwarf rice uh, plants in in Asia, um, you know, dramatically increased the yields of these crops. I mean, doubled to tripled them in some cases. Uh, and we were able, to, so we were able to grow all this food on about the same amount of land. Uh, but even Borlaug in 1970 warned that the Green Revolution would really only give humanity about 30 years of breathing room. Um, until we got what he called the population monster under control. So even Borlaug uh, was sort of this this closet moth, well, not even closet, he was an open Malthusian about the prospects of um, of population versus food. And sure enough, almost on key, around 2000, uh, the great yield gains that we'd made with wheat and rice and corn started to plateau, right? Corn, we still are getting higher and higher because we're putting so much money, in, especially in the United States, in investing in corn genetics and other, cro- other things that help them. So they're going up, but nowhere near as fast as they were um, uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, certainly in the 70s. So these great crop yields have started to plateau. Meanwhile, demand from population growth, 80 million more mouths to feed each year. Demand from biofuels. You know, we're now putting 40% of our corn crop into our cars, and Europe's doing very much the same. Um, our increased incomes from, uh, of course, places like China and India, which used to eat very low on the food chain, as their middle classes have become uh, greater and more wealthy. They're eating more meat in China. They're eating more dairy in India. And this is, has a multiplier effect on our grain demand. So scientists now say we have to uh, in- increase our grain production, for these three basic crops that provide the bulk of the world's calories, rice, wheat, and corn, by 70 to 110% by 2050. 
And as one plant breeder likes to say, that's, you know, we're going to have to learn to produce more grain in the next 40 years than we have since the beginning of civilization. And that's the great challenge we now face. And a big part of this challenge, which is, I think, a, a non-intuitive piece of, of what you write about, is this idea that as the world gets richer, that as more people pull themselves out of poverty, a few things happen, right? They move away from the land. They move into cities. And they're looking to consume more, but they're not necessarily in the business of growing more. Meanwhile, the more money they have, the higher they eat in the food chain. They eat more meat. They eat more dairy. That takes an awful lot more grain to make than if they were just eating a vegetable diet. You're obviously not arguing, Joel Bourne, for people to have less money, but there is kind of a, well, there's a conundrum there. What, what do we do as, as the world gets richer? We seem to eat the wrong way. Well, this is this is part of the part of the great dilemma. If you look at sub-Saharan Africa right now, one African farmer feeds about one urban African, right? But as their population grows, their yields are in the tank. They are really um, having are struggling to to grow the food they need. So, uh, as population growth continues, one rural African farmer is going to have to feed two, three, maybe even four urban Africans. By the end of the century. So, and that's going to be incredibly difficult for them to do using the tools they have now. So, you know, we're, there are ways that we can increase production, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit. There are also, but it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to, to make these ends meet without also reducing our demand. And there are several ways we can do that as well. Well, before we take a break, I, I want to read a tweet from Jeff who says, can't this all be summed up in three words? Control the population. And that gets to the other part of the, the, the Malthus equation that we talked about at the front. What about the controlling the population part of it? That's always, Joel Bourne, the, the scarier, the more difficult thing to say to a growing world. We just need to have fewer children and because that way we won't have to grow so much food. How do we handle that part of this very tricky political conversation? Right. Well, you know, well, this is part of the reducing demand part, right? Currently, the United Nations estimates that we're going to have 9.6 billion people on the planet by 2050. That's their medium range, which is their, typically their most accurate. And that's going to continue to increase to something like 11.2 billion by centuries in. But there's no law that says we have to get there, Right. Um, research after research has found that if you simply educate women to at least the sixth grade, in my book I recommend at least through high school, uh, they will invariably, and give them, you know, make family planning services and contraceptives free and readily available, um, uh, then they will uh, voluntarily reduce the number of children they have. And by starting and informing and encouraging this, what I've called and what others have called the pink revolution, in places like South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, where population and fertility rates are still climbing dramatically, uh, you get a host of benefits. You know, you liberate half the population. Uh, you know, you may even see democracy start to flourish in many cases. So helping those countries make that demographic transition is one of the most important things we can do, both from a food security standpoint as well as a national security standpoint. It's just and, it, and it's a win-win for them as well. But, but there certainly are cultural, cultural and political hurdles that stand in our way. Uh, cultural hurdles, certainly. But, but the way you frame it as an education revolution with the idea that birth control comes along with greater education specifically of women around the world as opposed to simply putting our dollars into birth control. That's a very different argument, I think, you make. Yes, it is. And, and you know, there's some countries, you know, Nigeria, I believe, where, where contraceptives have been free and readily available for decades. People still have five to seven children. You know, women still have five to seven children uh, during their lifetime. So it takes education. It takes government support. It takes, you know, a culture that says 
we can no longer sustain this. And several countries have done this. I mean, this is Rwanda is one that went through an awful crisis with the genocide in 1990. They are turning their uh, fertility rates around. Iran, believe it or not, uh, holds the record for one of the fastest demographic transitions in the world. And uh, they went from women having seven, eight children uh, during their lifetime to replacement rate in almost 15 years because they had strong government support, strong primary health care, you know, and strong education. And, you know, so it does work. It just it needs a lot of, uh, of support from the rest of the world. The book is called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. And the author is Joel Bourne. He joins us today from North Carolina. When we come back, we'll be joined by the program director for the Yale Sustainable Food Program to talk about how we can grow more food more efficiently for this growing population. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking with Joel Bourne. He's a regular contributor to National Geographic and is the author of a new book called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. We've been talking about the growing global population and the need to feed this population. We're talking about some of the solutions that he talks about. In just a moment, we'll be bringing in someone from Yale's Sustainable Food Program. Uh, In researching this book, Joel, you talked to a number of people who are trying new, innovative ways of growing food, including aquaculture, which is something we've been fascinated by for some time. Maybe you can talk about one or two of these individuals who you think may be providing uh, at least a key to a, a breakthrough for us in terms of growing food in a new way. Well, sure. Well, aquaculture has been one of the the fastest growing food production systems on the planet since about the 1970s. Uh, The bulk of it, of course, has been in Asia, where they've had a long thousand or more year tradition of growing fish um, and uh, and providing food for the people. Uh, Now, it's also one of these things like the Green Revolution. It has some of the same warts, uh, as we've seen with with the global shrimp industry, which took out something like a quarter of the world's mangroves in the 1980s. Uh, and the run-up in the Atlantic salmon, this sort of uh, fishery salmon, which has been plagued by disease, uh, escapement. You know, they're non-native creatures, and, and you know, we're having problems with pharmaceuticals and those sort of things. But there are ways we can do aquaculture in ways that are incredibly sustainable and, qu- and also incredibly productive. And it is by far the most efficient way uh, to produce animal protein. So uh, one of the ways, of course, that's very popular in the Northeast is shellfish production. Oyster, mussels, clam uh, production, Uh, these are filter feeders. They need no uh, arable land. They need no fresh water. And they typically clean up the water bodies that they're in, reducing the sediment and the nutrient loads. Uh, Another, and that's a very simple type of aquaculture that we can certainly expand. Uh, The other type, of course, is that we looked at was this method called multitrophic aquaculture, where you're growing several different species uh, in one spot. Each of one, you know, maybe one fed species like a, a native fish. And the one I use as an example is a black cod uh, in a farm in Vancouver, off Vancouver Island. Uh, and it's surrounded by nets full of kelp, sugar kelp, that we're, we use for sushi wrapper. Uh, bat, Chinese lantern baskets full of mussels. 
uh, again, native mussels that help um, take up the nutrients that the fish put out. And then at the very bottom, we have the sea cucumbers that we don't currently eat in the United States, but they're very popular in Asia uh, that sort of scarf off all the heavy stuff that falls to the bottom. So what you end up doing is producing about eight species, feeding only one, and uh, doing it in a very sustainable way. Now, uh, one of the other fascinating uh, fish farms I visited was offshore in Panama, this huge operation where they were growing uh, cobia in deep off-water pen, uh, offshore pens, about eight miles off the coast, uh, in an area which uh, uh, you know, was very low in nutrients, had a lot of freshwater flow, uh, and they could detect no pollution outside of the pens whatsoever. So this it's highly capitalized. No one knows whether this is going to succeed or not. But if it does, it could finally fulfill Jacques Cousteau's dream of actually farming the oceans, going from hunters and gatherers on the high seas to actually farming the oceans. And uh, all of those have great potential. We'll see if they have uh, the economic ability to sustain uh, over the next decade. Well, of course, but again, yeah, we the, could, I was just going to say the economic ability to sustain sometimes has to do with something that you said in your answer there, which is there are certain things that we eat in the U.S. and certain things we don't eat yet. And maybe if we can eat some more of the things that uh, that are a little bit easier to farm for us, uh, it would be a bit better. I just want to bring into the conversation Justin Freiberg. He's program director for Yale West Campus and also the Yale Sustainable Food Program. I want to get some of your thoughts on our conversation so far. And Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I, you just heard a little bit about uh, some aquaculture ideas. Certainly, we've been talking about the green revolution, and maybe, as Joel says, the need for a new green revolution. What are some What are some themes you you see in here? Is it all doom and gloom? Can Can we actually be able to feed a planet uh, growing to nine billion people? It's a huge question, um, and I think a lot of the work we do here focuses on our small efforts that um, I think in Joel's book, he, he uses a wonderful turn of phrase of a silver buckshot approach to food systems and building some of these solutions. And that's kind of what we're focusing on. Uh, we have these brilliant, qualified people coming from non-agronomy backgrounds uh, who are approaching us and saying, we want to get involved in food systems and building solutions. So our job is to support them, connect them with the resources they need to build their knowledge of the food system, and then uh, bring new solutions out into the world. The, the resources they need, and Joel was just talking there about the economics of all this, isn't that important? I mean, we can't rely on big foundations necessarily to drop a whole bunch of money on new food-growing ideas. We can't necessarily uh, rely on governments to subsidize winners in this field. So how do we find the money to do this, Justin? That's a fair question. And to some extent, we, we seed small ideas here. As of now, you know, so one example we have that might kind of dovetails nicely with Joel's um, take on aquaculture is how do we get um, some funding towards uh, some totally new foods that we don't eat in America, but that can be produced really efficiently. So one little example of that that I've seen over the past few years is this growing student interest in building a cultural shift in eating insects. Um, we had one entrepreneurial effort that actually won the biggest prize at Yale uh, towards a food business that has a, an environmental impact. And what they were doing was producing a sustainable, quote-unquote, uh, cricket protein that could sh like fit right in and replace other proteins and be produced with less energy-intensive manners. Mm. And this is, in Joel, ideas like this, you know, finding ways to use cheap crops, the, the cheapest crops, perhaps insects, is a way to get protein to more people. Do you see it as, as a part, Joel, of the, of the answer here? 
Oh, absolutely. Justin's completely correct. I mean, we're going to have to start uh, broadening our uh, our palate here if we're going to get uh, enough food for everyone in the world. One of the examples that I like, of course, and Justin's probably familiar with, is, is kelp. You know, they eat a t- uh, tons of kelp. It's very nutritious. It grows easily. It grows very quickly. Uh, and we now have uh, our first commercial kelp farm in the United States off the coast of Maine uh, that's producing kelp slaw, kelp salad, you know. Introducing these new foods that are much more sustainable than corn um, uh, into the diet is is critically important, and getting you know Americans especially, which consume so much, uh, to broaden their palate is is very important. I think Justin's exactly right. Joel, do you worry though with any of these new ideas about some of the laws of unintended consequences? I mean, I I suppose nobody thought that in the middle part of the 20th century, as we began to increase corn yields the way we did, that corn would be in everything, including our our engines to the extent that they are, that, that we would see some of the overfishing of very uh, small fish, not necessarily for human consumption, but to be going into products of various sorts. It seems like whenever we find a a big booming crop of something in the world, we overfish it, we overgrow it, we, we kill it dead. How, how, do we, how do we steer clear of that? Well, and again, this is this is part of the massive footprint of global agriculture, you know, which covers forty percent of the dry land area on Earth that's not under ice, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to be a very difficult challenge. And every time, like you said, every time we come up with something new, uh, there's the potential for that. But uh, I think the 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 hurdles that we face are so high. We have to try these things, but we have to put this new sort of paradigm on them because we know what the Green Revolution did. We know, we, we can see, we can test the roundup in the waters, right? We can see the dead zone at the end of the Mississippi uh, every spring. We know the impact there. So I think looking farther down the pike, I, you know, there, I, I, there may be an impact to cricket, eating crickets. I, I can't imagine one, but, um, but uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to try all these things. Justin, do you have some thoughts on that? I do, I guess. Um, Another example of, again, we're just seeding small ideas here, and, and hopefully someday we can build partnerships that scale them. But in terms of building alternatives to some of these monoculture systems, um, you know, I'm working with what I see as student demand here, and I see this huge groundswell and interest in agroforestry systems that are specific to the Northeast. Again, these are like similar to the, um, some of those traditional aquaculture systems that Joel discusses in his book, where there's multiple outputs coming out of these very resilient systems that can um, really deal well with a changing climate. So we, some of these are specific to the Northeast, where we're growing understory food crops um, in the Northeast forests, which are hugely fast-growing forest systems. So, again, trying to complement some of the traditional systems of uh, that we have in our country now with some of these larger monocultures with some of the more traditional um, but now more specific forward-looking systems that we can build here. Let's go to John in Stanford. Hi, John. Hi, John. Uh, great show. And I just wanted to touch on a couple of historical notions. Um, Joel had mentioned the Haber-Bosch process, which was the synthetic fixation of ammonia for which they received a Nobel Prize. Um, that was the same Fritz Haber who opened the first canister of poison gas in 1920, uh, let's see, it would be April 23rd on 1915 on the Battle of Ypres in, in Belgium and killed a bunch of troops there. And notwithstanding that, uh, you know, German science did some good things and some bad things, and the propulsion to use insecticides 
came really from a massive trove of chemistry that was residual at the end of World War II, and they had to find something to do with it. That same company, IG Farben, which was a large conglomerate, incorporated Bayer, and of course Bayer is under the gun for importing about 70% of all the antibiotics that we use, and those go mostly into animal feed, and that is obviously a, you know, a well-known problem that we have in the United States. So I just wanted to touch on those things because there's good and bad, and we need to concentrate on the good, and it's a great topic, and uh, I look forward to reading the book. Uh, John, thank you very much for that. Any thoughts on, on John's comment there, Joel? Oh, absolutely. John's absolutely right. We um, Modern agriculture is, goes hand-in-hand hand with sort of these products of the defense industry. Um, you know, the Haber-Bosch thing came across, uh, came up because the, the English chemist uh, William Crookes in the early 1900s said, you know, we're going to run out of nitrogen for the wheat-eating people of the world. There's not enough guano. There's not enough uh, uh, nitrogen coming out of our legumes. We have to come up with another way. And sure enough, 15 years later, Haber-Bosch up, came up with this thing that was used uh, for good and for very ill. So, uh, and again, all of these things have consequences. I mean, agriculture has such a large footprint. It's just incredible. And as we, we talk about things like organic, which sort of eschews these things, uh, uh, the head of the organic, the Rodale Test Farm down there, uh, once told me that organic agriculture, you know, conventional agriculture is like the racehorse. When the track is perfect, you know, it's a thoroughbred. It sure can run. Huge yields. But when is the track ever perfect? You know, and here with organic agriculture, we can produce, you know, we're the, we're the draft horse. We can plot along. We can produce yields every year, make food, make money, uh, and do much less uh, harm to the environment. So I think incorporating some of the, the best of both of these worlds uh, and reducing our environmental impact is the way we have to look forward. Hey, Justin, can you talk about that a, a bit? Because one of the, the stories that Joel tells in, in the book, and it's very true, uh, organic farming has, has long been seen as this kind of niche in America, something that farmers long ago turned away from, and something that doesn't yield in the same way that the traditional agribusiness does. But as he just pointed out, there is something about the quality of the food and the quality of the soil and the ability to withstand droughts and other chaos that is, seems to be coming from the environment. There's something, just in inorganic farming that maybe can, can be part of the solution here. I, I think he's absolutely right. And uh, again, we are, we're farming here in New England, but we're also sending our students to look at the developed ways of farming that have been practiced over thousands of years. We send Global Food Fellows to Peru, Bolivia, um, Chile, and we're looking at what they've done um, in varying climates across time and seeing if there's lessons there can, that can be applied back here. But beyond that, we're also trying to support students who are looking to kind of do that interstitial work in the food system. Yes, we, can, we know we can produce great-tasting food. How can we get it to consumers in new ways? So there's graduates of Yale who are looking at those um, mobile technologies that are allowing consumers to access organic foods in a more convenient, hopefully cheaper manner, more affordable. So we really want to support that system, but um, make it more resilient, make it more approachable, make it more affordable as well. I want to go to Tom, who's calling from a cell phone. Hi there, Tom. Go ahead. Hi, um, I was calling because it actually it kind of relates back to some of the part of the discussion on the nutrient uh, as sustainability problem. Is I would like to see what the um, guests have to say about the aquaponics emerging growth, the uh, utilization of the fish farm for the production of the nutrients to be able to do a hydroponic growth system, which would be able to 
A, it would, it would lessen some of the potential drifts and escapes because you could utilize it in a, a non-arable area um, and what the options or the potential growth in that sector could be. Tom, thank you very much for the question, and I've read sub- substantially on, on this really interesting issue of aquaponics. Joel Bourne, is this part of the answer here? Oh, I think it's very cool, and certainly uh, a certain a great way we can you know utilize making fish protein as well as as using their waste in in more creative ways uh, to help fertilize um, uh, vegetable crops. Now, what you see in in China, we're having this enormous resurgence in sort of rice carp aquaculture. That uh, is this, uh, you know, it's the traditional way of doing this, where they're growing carp in, in flooded rice fields, and the carp are eating the insects, and their waste is fertilizing. Um, uh, fertilizing the rice, they're using less herbicides, less pesticides, less fertilizer, and many of these systems are being uh, sold as organic rice, which is incredibly important. You know, we think of organic food as only sort of this niche in the United States and Europe. China is crazy about organics because they've had so many food scares over the years and food contamination. So it's becoming sort of a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, of course, the rice growers who do it this way can make more money uh, by getting that organic label on their crops, and it makes it more profitable for them, which makes them want to do more of it. It's, it's, it's one of these things that sort of compounds itself. We're getting a few tweets, one from Neil that says, does the guest think we can grow yields by planting up and not out vertical farms, fish farm towers, etc.? And another from Kelly who says the poor can't afford to eat healthy uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, Kelly also writes, shellfish isn't cheap either. Can we talk about affordability? And Justin, I know this is something you talk about a lot is, you know, it's not just about getting calories to people. It's about getting good calories to people. And often one of the big barriers is really high quality food getting into some of the poorest people, not only elsewhere in the world, but right here in America. That's absolutely true, yeah. There's, um, beyond getting it to the people and making it more affordable, which is really just, that is a big issue, um, shifting the demand for it and, and building the educational mechanisms that, first of all, let people know that what their choices are in this world is something that we've been focusing on. We have some interesting partnerships that we're really piloting with the School of Medicine and the School of Nursing. It's worth noting that both of those schools are the ones that approached um, me about and the Yale Sustainable Food Program about building these partnerships. They're really realizing at this point that doctors and nurse practitioners who are trained and confidently and expertly speaking about nutrition issues and food choices with their patients um, can shift that demand, hopefully, and hopefully lessen some of the chronic diet-related diseases in our country. I mean, it's a long chain here. We're interconnected, but the hope is in building those educational systems and shifting the demand ever so slightly, bit by bit, that changes what the uh, production supply will be as well. Joel Bourne, before we take our next break, we have to tackle one really important subject here, which is GMOs, genetically modified organisms. This is something that's quite controversial here in the United States, and GMOs are banned in other parts of the world. How much of of, of a part of the solution do you see GMOs being? Because if we're talking about more crops for more people... A lot of people in the world say, you know, science may take us there. It's about genetically modifying things to work in a changing climate. You know, I'm sort of pragmatic when it comes to GMOs. Uh, When I was an ag student, these things were going to be the miracle crops. They were going to solve, you know, nutrient deficiencies. They were going to solve hunger. Yield would no longer be a problem. Um, They were so highly hyped. And what we've had in the last 35 years, the time it took Borlaug to double grain yields, uh, doing the traditional way, we've got two blockbuster traits. And even though they haven't caused, you know, the great environmental or health scares we thought, 
they haven't pushed the yield ball at all. And now we're starting to see resistance to BT, resistance to Roundup and glyphosate coming up because we've so mismanaged these traits. Uh, the, the good thing is that now that we're starting to see the cost of this technology come down, so it's moving into the land-grant universities, it's moving into the nonprofits where they can use it uh, for a public good instead of a, a sort of private uh, private benefit. And I think now you're going to start to see GMOs really take off. Like UC Davis has flood-resistant rice. You know, we're now seeing this vitamin A golden rice start to come out in, in the Philippines that could have a serious impact on reducing uh, vitamin A deficiency around the world. So the challenges for us are so great. I, I don't think we can afford to take anything off the shelf and say no. But we have to judge each GMO on its, on its merit, and there has to be some better way of um, regulating them in such a way that people feel confident that they're not going to harm themselves, their children, or the environment. Um, otherwise, they're just not going to go anywhere. Justin, we have just a minute left, but I'd love your thoughts on this. I actually am in, in complete agreement with Joel on this. I think more science is needed, um, more conversation, uh, less polarization on this issue. I would love to... Um, Make sure that both sides get as much information as possible and that consumers do feel, um, you know, uh, heard in their desire to know if there's a GMO crop in what they're buying, but also that there's more science done so people can understand the ramifications of these on their, on their health and the health of the environment. Uh, Justin Freiberg is program director for Yale West Campus and the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Thank you so much for joining us, Justin. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our program continues after this break with Joel Bourne. He's the author of The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. We're also going to be talking more about the geopolitical ramifications of what we've been talking about during this hour. Hope you can stay with us where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Lucy Nalpathancho hosts a special for Veterans Day. I hope you can join us. Today on our program, our guest is Joel Bourne. He's a regular contributor to National Geographic, and he's the author of a book called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. We've been talking about global population and food production. I want to bring into the conversation Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale University and the author of Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. He wrote a New York Times opinion piece called The Next Genocide. We thought that in many ways dovetailed with the conversation we're having today. Timothy Snyder, welcome to Where We Live. Glad to. You say that modern environmental stresses from climate change could encourage variations on some of the ideas that uh, Adolf Hitler proposed uh, and carried out in the 30s and 40s. Explain to our audience how you think some of these things tie together with climate change and and the, the issues that we're talking about with Joel Bourne today. So, so one, one of the strange things about our, our moment in history is that this is the first. This is the first and only age of plenty. This is really the only time in history where politics could be put on one side and food could be put on the other side. When we look back at the 1920s and 1930s, we have an entirely different picture. Um, we see a case in Nazi Germany where a very developed society, a very sophisticated political system, could come to the conclusion that what had to happen was the conquest of land in order to preserve not so much life, but a certain kind of lifestyle. 
It was a conscious political choice. The choice that the German leadership made was, we believe a disaster is coming. We don't think science is going to be able to help us. Therefore, we have to act preemptively in order to control territory. And so this is something we have to keep in mind, because as climate changes and as droughts become more common, as food becomes scarcer, it's not just that people starve, which is bad enough. It's not just that there are local crises such as Rwanda, Sudan, and today Syria, which are awful. It's also the case that more developed societies such as, for example, China, could make more drastic decisions about trying to secure food. Trying to secure food in, in, at, the, at the cost, certainly, that, that we've seen. One of the, the parts of the story that's, of course, so, so fascinating is that what you propose Hitler was doing and, and the Germany was doing was, was, in many ways, completely anti-science, anti-scientific. We've, we've talked earlier in the program a little bit about some of the science behind agribusiness in, in the middle part of the century. But, but, but talk a bit about that, about how, how science was actually the enemy of, of some of these ideas. Well, Hitler's basic approach was that in order for Germans to be to survive, to be secure, and to feel comfortable, they had to control more land, and that this was an urgent thing. It had to happen right away. It had to be preemptive. And it's not that he said that science didn't work. What he claimed was that science will never catch up. Science will never give us all the things that we need. And so, therefore, this is interesting. I mean, this is a part of Mein Kampf, which no one ever reads or cites or remembers. Hitler specifically says agricultural technology is not actually going to make a difference. It's not going to make a sufficient difference. Therefore, we have to conquer land. And Joel Bourne, I mean, that, in, in many ways, that's the start of your book, too. It's this, it's this notion that maybe we don't ever catch up with a growing population. We, we maybe never can rely on science to, to feed the world, given the, the way population tends to grow. Well, this is one of the great challenges. And, of course, you mentioned climate change, which is this real sort of Damocles sort of hanging over all our fields. Now, you know, we're supposed to stay within this two-degree safety belt, which we are rapidly, you know, blowing past. We're currently, our missions are on track to get us between 3.6 and 5.2 by centuries in. And this broad research um, study from the Royal Society that scared me most, came out a few years ago, said that if we get to a four-degree Celsius increase in global average surface temperatures, half uh, of our agricultural land could either be less suitable or even uh, unsuitable for agriculture by 2100, when we're going to have 11.2 billion people on the planet. So, you know, feeding that many people with half the land we currently have um, is, you know, going to drive countries like China to look for other options. And, of course, right now they're looking at Africa. They're looking at Ukraine. They're looking at parts of Russia uh, to go in and, and supplement the amount of grain that they need both to feed their people and their incredibly large um, hog, op, you know, hog population of 600 million uh, and this is only going to, you know, only going to increase unless we can get the climate change uh, problem under control. And, and what do you think, Timothy Snyder, that, that role that China is playing in those regions, in Ukraine, in Russia, and in Africa, certainly, as it tries to feed its growing population it's, and also its growing middle class population, as we talked about earlier, that, that is not going to just eat low in the food chain, but is going to eat meat at an increasing level? What do you think the impact I- is on us? Yeah, see, that, that, that's the key point. It's, it's not about survival. I mean, issues of survival are important enough. It's about what a, what a sophisticated, developing society can do to preserve what its population expects. So the danger is not that the Chinese are going to starve to death. The danger is that in order to preserve 
rising levels of, let's say, meat consumption, China needs to control an awful lot of land, especially in a situation when its arable land is degrading, in a situation where it doesn't have enough water and the water that it does have is melting from glaciers. In, in, in that set of political circumstances, Chinese leaders are farsighted enough that they can think, aha, we need to start putting down leases in Africa. We need to start leasing Ukraine. Um, the thing about this is that when they try to hold those leases at a time where that land is going to seem ever more valuable to the people who actually live on it or next to it, you then would have um, very large temptations on both sides for the use of violence. And of course, beyond China, where you're not necessarily talking about uh, China as a country surviving, you're, you're talking about it trying to grow. There are many other parts of the world, Timothy, where uh, violence stems directly from real food scarcity, where when you don't have enough food, violence almost always ensues. Yeah. I mean, what we're do- what I'm doing in-, in response to your last question is trying to think us back to the 1930s. So let's yeah. imagine that there's a developed society which thinks ahead. But of course, as we look back in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and today, you have situations where, for example, in Rwanda, crop yields went down in absolute terms, the year before the genocide happened. In Sudan, um, uh, in Sudan, you had people driven southward by drought. The government sided with them against other tribes, and those tribes were exterminated. In Syria today, the civil war begins after three years of consecutive drought, which scientists, scientists generally believe is, is human-created. So we already have these kinds of scenarios. They're unfolding before our eyes. And unfortunately, the risk is that the scenarios that are in front of us could be worse because powerful countries can act beyond their own borders. Uh, Timothy Snyder is a professor of history at Yale University, author of Black Earth, The Holocaust is History and Warning. Uh, He wrote a recent New York uh, Times opinion piece about the next genocide. And I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, Timothy. My pleasure. I want to quickly get to the phones. Marilyn uh, is in Brantford. Marilyn, quickly, if you would, with Joel Bourne. Yes, please. I'm concerned about the two people who were there that are, are... Um, are liking GMOs. And it's not that I'm against GMOs per se. I'm against the fact that Monsanto has been allowed to patent them. They're patenting nature, which prevents people from, I mean, eventually if this thing grows, and I guess they do blow onto other people's property, and those people have been sued because they didn't buy the seeds from them. But it prevents people from growing their own crops and saving the seed for the next season. Marilyn, thank you very much for raising that. And Joel Bourne, she says she's not necessarily against GMOs, but the way GMOs have been used specifically by very large corporations like Monsanto. What do you say? Well, sure. I mean, Norman Borlaug um, never patented one seed. You know, his his seeds were worth billions. He gave them away free to everyone. And of course, he worked at a nonprofit. He worked at land-grant institutions. Uh, Monsanto has invested billions in, in developing their, their proprietary seeds, um, but they no longer have a lock on the technology. And so, you know, people who want to buy Monsanto seeds and sign off on their intellectual property agreement uh, not to to share them uh, can do so if they think they, you know, the market will bear it. Uh, Those who don't can certainly go elsewhere. And I think um, you're going to see a lot more options for farmers as we as we uh, head down the pike. We just have a few minutes left. And I guess I'm wondering, because we don't want to have this conversation be completely bleak, saying that we'll we'll run out of food and the population will grow out of control. What what hope do you see on the horizon, Joel Bourne? As you, you certainly talked with a number of people who are looking at solutions right now. But are you hopeful in some ways? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, now that everyone is focused on this issue, and of course, we're going to hear a lot about this probably from the Pope tomorrow, 
probably uh, at the Paris talks uh, in December. You know, we can certainly increase our supply by helping close these yield gaps around the world, places like sub-Saharan Africa, the former Soviet Union that used to have such high yields, um, you know, with the technology on the shelf. We can do more with aquaculture. We can help countries irrigate smarter and use their water much more efficiently. We currently waste half the water we pour in our crops, which is 70 percent of all the fresh water on Earth. You know, we can cut our biofuels. I mean, it makes no sense now to pour so much grain, 40% of the U.S. crop, into our gas tanks when there's so many more efficient ways to move, it, move ourselves around. Uh, and electric cars, of course, are showing us, uh, showing us the way. Uh, and, of course, we can eat lower on the food chain. There's, you know, we eat more meat in the United States than is, is inc- you know, that is healthy for us. You know, we're heading toward the point where if the obesity, obesity trends continue, half the United States population is going to be either have diabetes or prediabetes by 2020 and cost us trillions in health care dollars. So eating lower on the food web just makes good sense. It's a win-win. And, of course, helping countries make the demographic transition just by educating women uh, is good all around. It, it's the, starting the pink revolution is the most important thing we can do. The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World is the book by Joel K. Bourne, Jr. He joined us today from studio in Wilmington, North Carolina. Thank you so much for the book and for the interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown with help from Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Continue our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live.